Well, we're going to look this morning at the uh, passage we were reading just now in Zechariah chapter 3, looking at the context of the, the chapter, but in particular focusing our thoughts on verse 4 that says, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I want you to think this morning about the importance of clothes. Don't suppose you're asked that very often in church? Think about clothes. I wonder how many of you ladies are like my wife, who will often tell me she's got nothing to wear. Yes, uh, maybe we get invited to something like you know, a wedding or something like that. And the first thing you say is, oh, we, we can't go. Why not? I've got nothing to wear. And I say, you've got wardrobes, plural, full of clothes. What do you mean? You've got nothing to wear. Men can't always understand the way that women think, and women can't always understand the way that men think either. Uh, to me, if you've got clothes in the wardrobe, you find something nice and tidy, you put it on and you go. But I began to understand what she meant. What she meant was, yeah, she's got plenty of clothes she could wear, but she wants something that is appropriate and right for the occasion. And we do that quite often, don't we? Maybe if we're going for a job interview, going to a funeral, going to a wedding, whatever it may be, we want to wear the appropriate clothes for that occasion so that one is we don't stand out, one is we are not looking as though we don't know what we're doing, we're looking tidy and correct for that occasion. And as I was thinking about this recently, I can think of at least two, probably more occasions in my life when I haven't been correctly dressed for the occasion and the effect that it had on me. I'll tell you briefly what they were. One of them was uh, many years ago when I went to a Saturday afternoon preaching service. This was in the day when the Evangelical Movement to Wales had rallies on Saturday afternoons and Saturday evenings in different parts of, of the country. And there was one going on quite away from where I was living, uh, but I, I wanted to hear the person who was preaching, so I went with some of my friends. We went this Saturday afternoon to this service, and uh, quite a large church, and the church was, was full of people. And when I got there, the person who was preaching, who was someone who, who I knew, always said, Chrissy said, I want you to come in the pulpit with me and read and pray before I preach. I said, I can't do that. I'm not dressed right. I was dressed very casually for a Saturday, probably jeans on and an open neck shirt and what have you. And this was in the day, thankfully changed now, when to go into a pulpit and you weren't wearing a suit and a tie, you were committing a major crime. And I thought, I, I, I can't do it. Now, he's the kind of man that you couldn't really say no to. So I thought, well... How can I get round this? As that happened, I went with a friend who was about my size, and he was very tidily dressed. And I did what I've never done before and never done since. I said, can I wear your clothes? He, he said, what? I said, can we change clothes? I explained why. So we went out behind the church where no one was, and I came back in wearing his trousers, his shirt, his tie, uh, looking quite smart and quite respectable. Why did I do that? because I felt very inappropriately dressed even to stand before a congregation with the expectations in those days of what you should be dressed like to be in a pulpit. Another occasion was when I went only one time in my life to a very posh restaurant in London. I'd been to uh, 
a memorial service for a member of my family who had obviously died. Uh, memorial service was in St. Paul's Cathedral, and then they went to a, a very posh restaurant for a meal after. I was um, quite a young man at the time and uh, didn't really know how to behave in that kind of environment, and I've never been in one since. Anyway, went in, very posh restaurant, and it was a really hot day, so I sat down, okay, jacket comes off, tie comes off, relax now. But then a couple of minutes, I had a tap on the shoulder from a, a waiter. Uh, Sir, we do not remove our jackets while we are seated at the table. Oh, don't we? I said, I didn't know that, very sorry. So quickly put my tie and my jacket back on and uh, sweltered for the afternoon. Again, I was inappropriately dressed for that particular occasion. So what I wanted to think about this morning is, if we can get embarrassed simply by wearing the wrong clothes before people, what can I wear to stand before God? What clothes can I wear when each one of us one day will have to stand before God? Um, what will I wear that is acceptable and appropriate on that occasion? And that really is what this chapter is all about. It's important for us to have clean clothes, to have the right clothes for the right occasion. And in this chapter here, we are told what clothes God provides for us in order that we might wear them when we come before him. But before we look at that in more detail, let me just fill in something of the background of the chapter here because it's important. Zechariah was the prophet in that day. He was the prophet in Judah immediately after their period of exile. You remember, if you know anything of the history of the Old Testament, the Jews have been in Babylon, away from their land, for around about 70 years, some a bit less than that. And after 70 years, they then returned to their own land of Judah, and they had to reestablish the whole land, uh, the worship of God and their houses and their businesses and everything. And Zechariah was the prophet whom God appointed, along with Haggai, there were two of them, in order there to teach the people and to lead the people how they should be conducting themselves and behaving back in Judah again. Now, that was Zechariah. And Zechariah was a man who had a lot of visions. God speaks to people in different ways, doesn't he? And for Zechariah, it was particularly through visions. And there are eight different visions in the book that bears his name. This is the fourth of them. And as I describe it to you, see if you can imagine what Zechariah was seeing in this vision. The vision was of a heavenly courtroom. So see if you can think of some kind of courtroom in your uh, imagination, as it were. And in this heavenly courtroom, we see the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord was the judge and was representing God. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, when we get that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's referring to Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem, what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, that may be him here. It may not be. We can't be sure. If it wasn't him, it was certainly an angel who was representing God and was the judge in the courtroom. Then we've got Joshua. Joshua was in the dock. Joshua was the high priest. Now, he was the man who was responsible for leading the people in worship, uh, conducting them, going through the sacrifices they made in those days and so on, and encouraging the people in their relationship with God. He's the high priest, and he's in the dock. He is the accused. And then the accuser is Satan, the devil. And that's the meaning of the word Satan, 
accuser. And he was there accusing Joshua, the high priest. Now, what was he accusing him of? He was accusing him, verse 3 tells us, of wearing filthy garments. In other words, not having the right clothes on, being inappropriately dressed. In other words, he was accusing him of his sin, of his defilement, of his unworthiness to be the high priest. It's as if Satan was saying to Joshua, huh, look at you, you say you're the high priest, but look at the wrong things that you've done. Look at your sin. Look at the way that you failed. You haven't been right all your life, have you? And he was accusing Joshua of wearing these filthy garments, unsuitable to be the high priest. So in that situation, what did the Lord, the judge, do? Did three things that we'll amplify a bit as we go along. First thing he did, he rebuked Satan. He said, Satan, you've got no right to accuse any of my people. We'll see why a little later. The second thing he did was to remove Joshua's filthy garments. He took those filthy robes off him. And the third thing he did, he clothed him with new clean clothes and he put a clean turban on his head. Remember, he was the high priest. The high priest had to wear clean robes and the high priest had a turban on his head and inscribed on it was holy to the Lord and that's now what Joshua was given these clean robes the turban on his head with the words on it holy to the Lord and you know what we see in that vision is really a lovely picture of what it means to be a Christian Tucked away here towards the end of the Old Testament, we've got a picture of what God has done for us and of what Jesus was going to do then and has done for us and what the New Testament calls justification by faith. And here we get it in this vision of Zechariah here in chapter 3. So let's go into it in a bit more detail. First thing we see here is what we can call our natural state. We see that in verse 3. It says, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. A natural state. Filthy garments. Filth in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, always represents sin. You may remember what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64, verse 6. He said, we've all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds, even those good things that we do, are like a polluted garment or like filthy rags, depending on your translation, like filthy rags, even those good things that we are trying to do. So what it's showing is, as we were just touching on with the children earlier, for each and every one of us, we have that tendency, that bias towards doing those things that are not right in God's sight. They're not pleasing to God. They're what the Bible calls sin. It's our natural state. We can see that so clearly, can't we, with anyone who's brought up any children will know very well you have to teach them not how to lie, but how to tell the truth. You don't have to teach them how to be greedy or selfish. You've got to teach them how to share with others and so on. Where do these things come from? That natural state in which you were born, which is to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. And Satan is he's very clever. Satan wants us to see sin as something exciting, something pleasurable, and something wonderful. 
And I'm sure that we can all think of many times in our life when maybe we've been tempted by something. And the temptation has been to go somewhere where we know that Christians shouldn't really go. Or to do something, or to watch something, or to read something that we know is not good for us. And what happens is Satan will come to us and say, well, everyone else is doing it, so, so why don't you? Look, it's going to give you some pleasure, some joy, some excitement. And maybe we succumb to the particular temptation. And for a little while we think, oh yeah, this is exciting. Uh, this is wonderful. This is pleasurable. But then the truth begins to dawn on us. That no, it's not like that at all. And it begins to make us feel dirty and filthy. Oh, why have I done that? Why did I allow myself to go there, do this, see that, whatever it may be? Because God sees sin very differently to the way that Satan sees sin. We read in Habakkuk that God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. He can't even look at wrong. We read in Isaiah 59, our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. So, when we talk about sin and iniquities, what does it actually mean? It means anything less than perfection. James, writing his letter in chapter 2 and verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. In other words, if you live life with a 99.9% .9 pass rate, you've still failed. We cannot do it. Some of you know I spent my professional life in teaching. And one of the most boring things I found in teaching was marking examination papers. It was only quite lightning when someone made a real howler. And you think, oh, a bit of relief there. That's good. They got that really wrong. Uh, but very boring. And you would go through, this is right, this is wrong. I would have marked thousands and thousands of examination papers. I never, ever gave anyone 100%. I did get 99% once, and I spotted a spelling mistake, so no, can't have 100%. Because perfection was impossible. No one could ever reach perfection in answering those examination questions. And if that is true for all of us, if we can't reach perfection, even on human things like examination papers or whatever it may be, how can we possibly attain perfection before a holy, righteous, creating, sovereign God? We can't. It's impossible. You see, we're talking here not only about what we do, but about what we think, about what we say. We're affected by that sin. What does it do to us? Well, these verses tell us two things. It makes us dirty in God's eyes and also in our own estimation. And it separates us from God. If we are to come before God, we need to be clean. Think of um, children playing out in the mud. Children like playing in the mud, don't they, very often? And uh, imagine now the mother or father uh, says, come on now, come on and it's time for dinner, it's time for tea, whatever it may be. Uh, come on in now from the garden and they come in and they're covered in mud and mud on their clothes and mud on their hands and everything. What's the first thing the mother will say before you come to table? You've got to go and wash yourself. You wash your hands, you wash your face, and if the clothes are dirty, you change your clothes as well. Because you're not coming to sit at table with the rest of us until you're clean. The child has to wash, have clean clothes, in order to come to the table and to partake in the meal. So if that is true for children coming for a family meal, then how can we have clean clothes 
and be clean inside to stand before a holy and a just and a righteous God. How can that ever happen? Well, thankfully, this chapter tells us. Having looked at our natural state, we can see, secondly, our new state. And it's in verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. To stand before God, we need new clothes. And that's just what God has provided. This is a lovely picture here of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, we have many problems in life. And one of our problems is this, that we cannot hide and we cannot cover those wrong things that we do. And you know, sometimes we try. And sometimes we can try very hard and try and cover over those wrong things that we've done or try and make up for them and make amends for them. We can't do it because God is all-seeing and God is all-knowing. We cannot escape his sight. We cannot escape his knowledge. And yet we will try. We try in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we think, well, okay, I know I've done some wrong things there, but... uh, Maybe if I do a few good things, they'll make up for the wrong things that I've done. No, they won't. Maybe we think, well, okay, yeah, I I did break God's law then, and I shouldn't have done that. So maybe if I read the Bible a bit more, or I pray a bit more, or I go to church more often, then maybe that'll make up for it, and it'll be all right. No, it won't. And maybe the worst thing of all that as Christians we can sometimes do is to pretend that sin doesn't really matter. That it's not really that serious. And we have a tendency to think, well, it may have been a little thing, but other people have done much worse things, so it doesn't really matter very much. And we don't take sin seriously, and we think it doesn't matter, and we try and gloss over it. To God, all sin is serious, and all sin matters. It is serious enough, And it matters enough to him that he sent his son to die for us. You see, these things never work. Have you ever noticed a bit of rust coming on your car maybe? Maybe on the the door or on the, the wing or whatever it may be of the car. And you see a bit of rust coming. Or maybe you're in the house and you've got some furniture and you can see a few little holes on it, and you think, oh, there's some woodworm coming there. What can I do about these things? And you might think, oh, if I just uh, paint over it, it'll be all right. Paint over the car, and uh, just paint over a bit of gloss or something on, on that furniture, and it'll hide it. It'll be all right. Yet you know very well it won't be all right. If you simply try and cover over the rust or the woodworm, before long it's going to be coming through again, and it'll be worse than it was before. All you can do is replace that which is damaged, take off that rusty wing of the car or take away that drawer from the furniture, whatever it may be, and what you've got to do is replace it with something new, otherwise it won't go away. We cannot cover over our sin. We can't just hide it. It'll always show through and will always get worse. That will never, ever work. So how can I ever be made clean? How can I be right with God? You know, there are two lovely snippets in this chapter that point us to the answer. In verse 8, at the end, we've got this little promise there. 
It's only a few words. The promise is, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, when we get the branch in the Old Testament, that's always referring to the Messiah. That's referring to Jesus who is to come. And you've got that lovely promise there. God is saying, my servant, the Messiah, Jesus, is coming. And then at the end of verse 9, you've got this wonderful phrase where God makes this promise. He says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Imagine that. He said, in one day, I will deal with all the sin, all the iniquity, all that's wrong in this land. And that was the day when Jesus died on the cross. The day of Jesus' crucifixion was the was a single day when God dealt with all the sin, all the iniquity in the land. The day when Jesus died. Peter puts it like this. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, what happened there? was that Jesus was paying the price for all those wrong things that I have done. In the Old Testament, they had to have their animal sacrifices to try and pay the price for the sins of the people. When it came to Jesus, described as the Lamb of God, he gave the final, all-perfect, all-sufficient, everlasting sacrifice to God because he was the perfect sacrifice paying the price, the penalty for all the wrong things that you and I have done so that we may be forgiven and that we may be, as we'll see in a moment, reclothed. Because Jesus paid the price, we can have a relationship with God and a right relationship with God. So how does this work? Well, again, the picture is in verse 4. Uh, filthy garments are taken off us. Just as in that vision, Joshua the high priest had his filthy garments taken off him. When we trust in Jesus Christ, our filthy garments are taken off us. And listen to this, it's wonderful and it's amazing and almost unbelievable. Our filthy garments are actually put on Jesus. When he died on the cross, he was wearing our dirty old clothes. He was wearing our filthy garments. He took them upon himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for each one of us by wearing our dirty clothes on that cross in order that when we confess our sins to God and trust in Jesus, we may be forgiven and we may have peace with God. Our dirty clothes are removed, put on Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. How does that work? How can our sin be taken away? Well, have you ever thought, what does God do with our sins? When we confess our sins, when we are forgiven, what does God do with them? There are many lovely verses in the Bible that tell us. Here's a few of them. Isaiah 38, 17. You have cast all my sins behind your back. You try looking behind your back. If you haven't got a mirror, you, you can't see it there, can you? They are hidden away behind his back. Psalm 103, verse 12. We read this. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. Can't get any further in this world than that. Micah 7:19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Right at the bottom of the ocean they are planted. Hebrews 10, 17, God says, I will remember their sins no more. 
That's a wonderful truth for Christians to grasp. He's not saying, I will forget your sins. Because if you forget, you can remember them again. He's saying, I will remember them no more. How often do you and I get troubled by things we've done in the past? And we remember those times when we failed God and we let him down. Those times when we've sinned and Satan will see to it that they're on our mind. And we think, oh Lord, can you ever use me again? Can you ever be pleased with me? Can I ever serve you? Look what I've done. God says, I remember those sins no more. They are buried in the depths of the sea. They're behind my back. They're as far as the east is from the west. And that's an important truth for us to grasp as Christians. The story is told, I don't know if you heard it before, of a priest in the Philippines. Uh, and this priest was, uh, he was a man who really believed in God and he wanted to serve God. But he had one major problem in his life. And his problem was this. When he was a student training for the ministry, he had committed a particular sin. He never told anyone what it was, but it was always bothering him. And he was always thinking, how can I be a priest seeking to lead these people in the worship of God when I did that particular sin when I was training for the ministry? And it really bothered him. In the congregation in his church was a lady who really knew the Lord, and she was known in the church as being someone who had a close relationship with the Lord, and she would often say, oh, you know, I talk to Jesus every day, and Jesus talks to me. And the priest was a little skeptical of that, because it wasn't his experience. But he said to her one day, he said, you really speak to Jesus every day? Yes. And he speaks to you? Yes. And sometimes through the Bible, sometimes through other means, he speaks. Well, he said, will you ask him something next time you speak to him? Yes. Will you say to Jesus, do you remember what sin your priest committed when he was a student? And then when you get the answer, let me know. Yeah, she said, I'll do that. So she went away and she prayed. And uh, a couple of days later, the priest came to her and said, did you mention to Jesus what I said? Oh, yes. What was his answer? I want to know. Oh, she said, his answer was this. I don't remember. And that changed that priest when he suddenly remembered that those sins were not on God's record against him. He didn't remember those sins because they had been washed away, cleansed away, and it transformed that man's life and ministry. You see, forgiveness means I'm clean, I am not guilty, I have peace with God because the price has been paid on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. When our clothes are removed, that's the first thing that happens. And the second is, we are clothed with new clothes. Rich garments, pure vestments, depending on your translation there. God's grace goes beyond forgiveness. He clothes us with his own righteousness. Isaiah calls it the robe of righteousness. Paul refers to it in, in Philippians 3 and verse 9, where he says, I don't have a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. Now what this means is that God gives us this new clothing, this robe of righteousness. So when God looks on us, he doesn't see our filthy rags because they've been put on Jesus on the cross. He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees the righteousness of Jesus clothing us 
Paul puts it like this to the Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a righteousness that is received by faith. When we ask God to forgive us for those wrong things, we believe that Jesus died on that cross to pay the price for us. We've been given then in God's sight. We have that new standing before God, standing in the robe of righteousness of Jesus himself. And so when God looks on us, he sees the righteousness of his son. And he says to us, you are my child. I will hear you. I will listen to your prayer. I will be to you your father and your God. It is received by faith. So our new state is that our sins are forgiven. We have new clean clothes received by faith. We have a relationship with God. So when we stand before him one day, we're not dressed in our filthy rags, but in the robes that Jesus has earned for us. Briefly to finish, we've seen our old state, our new state, We'll finish with our new status, very briefly. Because what does all this mean for us? A few quick things. It means we can have confidence before God. You've got a phrase there in verse 7, when he's talking to, to Joshua, now the high priest, and he says, now he's clothed in these new clothes, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. He had the right of access to God. And so do you and I. We can have confidence that because we are trusting in Jesus, we have that right of access. That means we can come before God anytime, anywhere, anyhow. We don't need to go through any ritual or ceremony. We don't need any person to intervene on our behalf. We have that right of access into the very presence of God himself because Jesus died on that cross for us. There is no longer that barrier that our sins created. That barrier has been smashed by Jesus dying on that cross, giving us confidence that we can come before God. Remember how the writer to Hebrews put it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence in our access before God. We have peace before God. We can see that in verses 1 and 2 there. We can see when Joshua the high priest was standing before the Lord and Satan was accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You have no right to do this. Paul put it like this in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? You see, Satan has no right to accuse us of our past sins, and he cannot resist our prayers. Someone put it like this, said, We have Satan as an adversary, but we have Christ as an advocate. We have Christ pleading our cause before the Father in heaven. In Jesus, we have the best barrister, the best attorney in eternity. Imagine that we were in the dock in that courtroom and that Satan was accusing us of our sins. We wouldn't have any defense, any leg to stand on, were it not that we have Jesus as our advocate pleading our cause before the Father, saying, Father, I died for them. They believed in me. 
They trusted in me. They are forgiven. They are clothed in my righteousness. And the judge will say, not guilty. You know, Martin Luther, the man who discovered the great truth of being justified by faith in the days of, of the Reformation uh, 500 years ago. Once he had come to that great truth and that great knowledge, he was often troubled by those past sins he had committed and he had done some, some pretty awful things in the past. And he records how very often he would lie awake at night, and it's usually at night, isn't it, when these thoughts come to us? Lie awake at night and Satan would come to him and say, how can you go telling people they can be justified by faith, have a relationship with God, know they're forgiven when, look at all these wrong things you've done in the past. Look at those sins you did. Look at those wrong things you said, those wrong things you thought. And you'd be tormented by this for a while. Then he would remind himself of that great truth that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are made right with God and that Satan cannot accuse God's people of any of their past sins. And he would look at Satan and in his imagination, he would see a, a big piece of paper. And he'd say, yes, Satan, you've reminded me of this, that, and the other. He said, you've forgotten a lot as well. You know, there's that one and that one and that one and that one. And in his imagination, he would just rip up the paper, throw it away, and say, Satan, you have no right to do it. Say, I am forgiven. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And Satan would leave him. The hymn writer put it like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. We have peace, we have confidence, we have assurance of salvation because our salvation depends on the completed work of Jesus Christ and not what you and I are attempting to do. We have assurance because our new clothes will never, ever become dirty. They'll never need washing, never need ironing. They are perfect because they're Jesus' clothes that we, by God's grace, are wearing. But we do have a responsibility. And it's there in verse 7. When Joshua was now clothed in these new clothes, the Lord said to him, If you will walk in my ways, keep my charge, then various promises are made. And if you and I know what it is to have our sins forgiven, being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, then we have the responsibility to walk in God's ways, to obey him, to honor him, to serve him, to please him. And as we do, that is evidence that we are a people who are forgiven. So come back to where I began. What shall we wear to stand before God himself? Our filthy rags? Unacceptable. No entry. Our new clothes? The righteousness of Jesus Christ? Then we have free and open access into the very presence of God himself now and for eternity. And how do we get those new clothes? Well, we simply ask for them. Just like children will often ask their parents, oh, someone in my class in school is wearing those trainers. Uh, can I have those trainers? Or someone's wearing that top. Can I have that top? Or I like that dress that someone's got. Can I have that dress? And the parents will say sometimes, yes, you can have it. Sometimes, no, you can't because it's the wrong size or it's too expensive or something else. But the child asks, and if the parent can give it, and it's appropriate to give it, then they will. When we come to God and we ask him, there's not a matter of, is it appropriate? Can he afford it? That is not the question. All we do is ask, 
and he will provide. He will give us those new clothes as we come and say, I know I've done wrong. I know I need to be forgiven. I know Jesus died to pay that price. Father, forgive me. I accept Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. Give me those new clothes. And out of his great love and mercy, he will surely give your request with the greatest of pleasure. He said, yes, you can now be dressed in those clothes. You can be in my presence for eternity. By God's grace, may each one of us know what it is to exchange our filthy rags for those rich garments and to live a life that's befitting such people.